0: Brand positioning is much more than a marketing exercise. I believe that it
1: underpins the entire organization. You just heard a new clip from the latest episode of the People of Digital Marketing, a resource that is created to help you, a marketer, impress your boss and eventually become your boss. And today's guest that will help you do just that is Mark Evans. Mark is the principal with Marketing Spark which offers fractional CMO and strategic advisory services to B2B SaaS companies. Mark's areas of expertise include brand positioning, messaging, and content-driven growth plans. Mark has a podcast as well and recently published the second edition of his do-it-your-own marketing book called Marketing Spark. And on this episode, we focus on brand positioning specifically for B2B SaaS organizations. Brand positioning in and of itself is a catch all term sometimes shown on posts on LinkedIn. And I wanted to dissect what it actually means to have impactful brand positioning. Why is it important to have brand positioning in the B2B space? Well, if you search for CRM solutions right now, there are more than 623 options available out there. If you're selling a CRM, for example, you have a lot of competition. How do you stand out? So that's what brand positioning is all about. And without further ado, let's just dive right into my conversation with Mark Evans. Hi, Mark. How are you? Glad to be here. It's always nice to start a Monday on a positive note. Nice. So, Mark, I would like to start off this podcast as I do with all other guests, which is to start off by just getting some more context about you as a professional, about you as a marketer. So my very first question for you, is how did you get into marketing?
0: It's a long story, but I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. I spent 15 years as a journalist, a technology journalist, writing for two of Canada's national newspapers and Bloomberg News. I never thought of myself as a marketer, never aspired to be a marketer. I wanted to be a lifelong journalist, love journalism. And along the way, I got recruited by a friend of mine to do a, a, a startup. And one thing led to another, and I launched my own marketing business in 2008, uh, specializing in helping B2B SaaS companies do better marketing. Why specifically B2B? I'm based in Toronto, the uh, epicenter for business in Canada. And we have a population of 30 to 35 million people, and we don't have a lot of B2C digital companies. We are mostly because of the size of the country, I think B2B has been the focus. So I just gravitated to B2B. And it just sort of aligned with my interests and in the way that I wanted to do marketing. And you know, one of the things that that I think about a lot when it comes to marketing is is niching down and specializing on specific areas. It's hard to be a generalist. It's great if you're a unicorn, you can you can do everything, but it's hard to actually make that happen. So it was one of the ways that I actually focused
1: on specific type of marketing for specific types of companies. And when you talk about niching down, that's a perfect segue to talk about the main topic of this of this episode. So niching down can also be, and correct me if I'm wrong, can also be attributed to positioning yourself and positioning a brand in a specific way. But positioning, at least for myself, can sometimes be a catch-all term. I've seen people on LinkedIn define brand positioning and, and positioning in general differently across various industries. How would you define what positioning is for a B2B SaaS company?
0: I think there are two primary concepts to be memorable and to be easily shareable. And by memorable, if you have clear positioning that people get right away, they understand what you do and why you matter to them, then that's a great way to break through the noise. And then as important, if your story is user-friendly, if someone can go to a conference or a dinner party and tell somebody else, hey, I ran across this amazing company and they do X and I'm super excited because the benefits are Y, and that person understands the story And so on and so on, then you've got a powerful brand positioning story to tell. Who owns that story within an organization? That is a really great question because traditionally brand positioning has been owned by marketing. They're the ones that are crafting this narrative that they'll take to the market through various channels and it, as a result, I think what's happened is that a lot of people with an organization have felt disconnected from the positioning exercise. So marketing does their work. They launch this new story and sales and marketing and customer success say, well, that's not the story that we want to tell. We're No one talked to us about it. So I think the answer to your question is that, well, let me take a sec back. My point of view is that Brand positioning is much more than a marketing exercise. I believe that it underpins the entire organization. Sales, product development, HR, customer success, raising capital, because you want to go to market with a story that is coherent and consistent, and you want everyone to rally around a story that they believe in. So, for example, better brand positioning allows sales to understand who they're targeting and to be empathetic to what their needs are. Better brand position allows product development to actually create features that customers want as opposed to features that engineers want to build. So they're just those are just two examples of the power of brand positioning. And as a result, I think that when a brand positioning exercise starts, everybody needs to be at the table. Everybody. So that people feel engaged and vested in the process so that when you launch your spanking new brand position everyone says yeah i was part of that that story resonates with me and i believe in it i'm gonna go to market i'm gonna i'm gonna embrace it and and share
1: it to the world i work in b2c but i faced this similar issue last year in the startup that i'm working at where we had a rebrand and one of the challenges that we're facing now is the brand governance uh challenge which is We've done a rebrand, we've created brand guidelines. We've started now to start conceptualizing our our bio persona and creating those documents. But it feels like once the documents are made, especially like a positioning statement, okay, there's buy-in, you have alignment, everyone's like, all right, this is awesome. We're now we're gonna start executing. How do you recommend your clients go about that execution where like the positioning is actually being manifested? And it's not just a document that, that starts collecting digital dust. Great question. And I think that a lot of brand positioning
0: exercises, unfortunately, collect digital dust. They're wonderful to do. Everyone gets excited about them. Everyone gets to display their creative juices. And that's it. So a couple of ways to think about this. One is the ROI and value of positioning. Is that not so much the deliverables, the value propositions, the brand positioning statements, the actual process that you go through? So if you take a deep dive into your customers, competitors, and your product, and you suss out, you surface what your customers want, how the competition position themselves so they can attract your customers, and your strengths and how you're unique, it allows people to, it delivers amazing insight to everybody involved in the process, which is why everybody needs to be involved. So and people inherently start to understand the way that they should think about the company and the way that the company stands out. So that's step one. Step two is turning positioning into messaging so that it's more than just updated buyer personas. And we can talk a little bit about traditional buyer personas versus the new buyer persona. But it's the idea that that story gets translated onto the website, into sales decks, your social media profiles. I call it pollination. It's the idea that the story appears everywhere so that it's impossible for your um, employees to ignore and that your target audiences see the same story everywhere, but it also goes back to the original point of making sure that people rally around the new story. So. Once people are engaged, that's great. But when the exercise is finished, what I would recommend to any organization is hold a town hall or some kind of group meeting so you can walk through the positioning, explain why it matters and, and what you need to do, and then talk about how everyone needs to talk off the page, page the same page of the script. Because once you get buy-in, then and you arm them with collateral, then... People feel vested, and they'll go to they'll go to market in a very in in a lockstep kind of way.
1: What is your recommendation when it comes to keeping things in lockstep? Where you've gone to that transformation, everyone has their marching orders, but now there has to be. Well, maybe let me take a step back here. Who owns monitoring? that everyone is going in lockstep? Who owns that brand governance after that transformation?
0: I would say that marketing is probably the positioning police if you wanna use that term. They're the ones that are actively monitoring all kinds of uh, activity from a sales and marketing perspective. They should be on top of what employees are saying, the collateral that's being used, anything that's offside, they gotta rein it in. Because one of the things that you're trying to avoid is variations of the truth. The, the problem that a lot of companies run into is that sales says our product is rate because of X and marketing is talking about Y and then product is going off on their own mad direction about what they think is important. And that's a recipe for disaster because you have an organization that's running madly in different directions. And marketing needs to, to be in control of positioning and messaging and they need to identify things that are going off the rails and bring it back in, because that's the only way that you can make your positioning and your messaging more successful is that if it's consistent and coherent.
1: Hey there. I want to talk to you about a great platform that you can use to support your business, support your team and get through this tough market, especially if you're trying to continue growing your marketing, but you need more support and that's marketer hire. What's market or hire? Market or hire is a platform similar to Upwork and Fiverr where you can hire vetted freelancers that can help you with your marketing. The difference between Upwork and Fiverr is that every single freelancer that's on the platform is vetted, evaluated for their skills, and they only get the top 1% of practitioners in the space. You can get SEO marketers, email marketers, even fractional CMOs on this platform. And what's even better is thanks to a partnership that I have with them, you can get your first $500 off in a credit when you hire your first freelancer on the platform. All you need to do is go to KennySoto.com forward slash hire. That's KennySoto.com forward slash H-I-R-E to get your first $500 off on your first freelance hire. And again, this is a great platform that you can use at any time whenever you're trying to scale your business at any stage of your business. So if you have a business that you're trying to grow, or if you just want to help support your team and impress your boss, visit KennySoto.com forward slash hire to get your first freelancer to support your team today. I've been um, doing research on internal marketing, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this. Would you say that internal marketing would be a, a good channel or initiative that a marketing team can use in order to rein in when there's that drift across uh, different stakeholders, across different teams, where it's like, okay, we're not just doing internal marketing for the sake of answering the question, what is the marketing team doing this month for this quarter, but we're also doing internal marketing to make sure that everyone's still aligned on that positioning and on those brand guidelines. I think the
0: marketing needs to be the positioning catalyst. They need to continually not only not penalize people for going offside, but also reinforce the message and make people feel confident that it's the right story at the right time. And it's, I think, a lot of value in just talking to other departments and asking them what they're doing and making suggestions and recommendations about how what they're doing aligns with the story that the company wants to tell at the same time, I think it's also important for marketing to be proactive and say, Hey sales, I developed this new, these slides for your deck, or here's a new approach to demos, or here's a video that we want to do. And I think a lot of positioning and messaging needs to be very collaborative because I think traditionally it's marketing saying, Hey, we developed this collateral, there you go. But there hasn't been enough idea brainstorming. And so. I think a lot of organizations feels that marketing simply leads the way and then tells people what to do. And it, and I, I think in a very collaborative
1: based culture, it doesn't work
0: that way. It it can't work
1: that way. In the guide that I'll have for the listeners uh, in the show notes, you share a multiple step process for creating transformative positioning statements. Can you go over the multiple steps and why you've created the process in that way? What I wanted to do was simplify the process because I think
0: from the outside looking in, brand positioning is sort of a fuzzy marketing activity. Yeah. And people don't really know what it is and they don't understand the deliverables. And and for the most part, people don't do brand positioning because they just don't see the value. So that's number one. And so the framework was created to break down the different parts of the journey. So to simplify it, Number one is essentially looking inward and asking yourself, you know, what is our positioning right now? What are the signs that it's not working? How can it be better? And why do we want to do this? Like, what are our motivations right now? It could be brand awareness is not what you want it to be, or your marketing and sales aren't working. Your website conversion rates are low. Your bounce rates are high. Or maybe the CEO slash entrepreneur, it's an ego-driven thing because one of your competitors is getting a lot of more coverage, or or just killing it, and you're not. So that's number one. And then the first step would be looking at your customers and trying to get a real sense of what their needs are, and you know what they think, feel, and do, how they do their jobs, how how work gets done, and how you can align your product to meet their needs and interests. So that's number one. That's a deep dive, and you've really got to uh, know them inside out. Number two would be competition. You know, entrepreneurs, a lot of entrepreneurs, when I hear this, they say, we don't have any competitors we don't have that much competition. And that's an absolute, it's either a lie or it's blissful ignorance or it's stupidity. I hope it's not the stupidity, but sometimes, you know, entrepreneurs are, are half glass. You know, they're always super optimistic and they always believe that their product is, is the obvious choice, but you really have to know that what the competition's doing, and and they're battling every day for the same customers that you want. And so how do they position themselves? What are their strengths and weaknesses? And how do they outflank you? Why do they win? And you have to know that as well. And then finally, you have to look at your product and say, okay, so we know what our customers want. We know what the competition is doing to attract those customers. So what are our strengths? You know, how do we differentiate ourselves amid a a wave of competition? And the one thing I did want to emphasize when it comes to differentiation, and a lot of marketers talk about differentiation is it doesn't necessarily have to be a dramatic difference. It can be something that's quite s- small or something that your customers love, 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 that your competitors don't do. So it could be your customer service, for example, or a feature that that your customers rally around. And when they discover your product, they love it and and they evangelize about it. But that's the whole essence of a, of a position exercise is to discover the thing that makes you stand out and something that you can rally
1: around to attract the people that matter to you. When you brought up those, the fact that that some people don't believe they have competition, even if people are aware that they have competition, another hidden competitor, if you will, are switching costs, like the the cost of breaking an old habit And to give a specific example for the listener, think about this company called Loom, where they help create screen recordings that replace meetings, emails, Slack messages, et cetera. Yes, there is utility there with their SaaS offering, but one of their competitors, aside from all the other copycats out there, is the old habit of sending a Slack message, scheduling an email, sending over a a meeting for a for discussing the task that you can just do a recording for. So it's not only that you have direct competitors, indirect competitors who just grab audience share, you also have the switching cost of transitioning from the old habit to what your product or service is trying to change. Now, with that being said, Mark, are there any examples that you can think of in the B2B space of brands that have really strong, memorable positioning that listeners can look at Um, when they're thinking about their, their company. Happy to answer that question, but first let me
0: address the change conundrum. Change is super hard. People hate to change horses in, in mid race. And so one of the challenges facing companies is getting people to even consider a new option to walk away from Excel, for example, and to embrace an online accounting platform, even though it's better, one of the ways that you can approach this is use Donald Miller's story brand template, and it starts with the idea that as a company, you're the guide and that your customer or prospect is the hero of the story, and your job as the guide is to show them the promised land, is to show them what's possible, what the future could look like, what a better future could look like if they considered Another option, so that's something to consider about. Like you really have to give people believable reasons that the exploration of a new approach is going to deliver tremendous results, and and also part of that is is FOMO. If you don't do this, these are the consequences. So that's number one. Uh, number two, the answer you know about a B two B SaaS company that has really great positioning. I think I would. I always when I do presentations, I have talk about Chili Piper which allows sales organizations to book meetings. And one of the things that impresses me about Chili Piper is the fact that their messaging and their position has evolved over the years. When they started, when I first started looking at them, it was very like inside baseball. Like they were using a lot of industry vernacular that was unclear and didn't highlight the reasons why this company would matter to me. And over the years, what they've done is they've simplified the messaging. They made it user-friendly and accessible and shareable to the point where when you hit their website, you go, I know what they do. I know what the benefits are. I got to talk to these people if you're in the market for for meeting software. So that's one example of the idea that simplicity and it's not dumbing down your message or dumbing down your positioning. It's just making it easy for people to quickly get what you do and whether you might matter to them. And that's the start of of the, of the marketing journey.
1: I saw on your LinkedIn that you shared a post around ChatGPT and I'm both optimistic but also wary of the tool. I know that it can be used for research purposes, but when it comes to creating content, it it it's hit or miss, mostly miss. And I'm also concerned with this new sea of commodity content that's going to be out in the world. I'm an SEO manager, so I have to monitor this all the time because now I'm going to start competing with way more experts out there um, when it comes to the insurance space. So when it comes to ChatGPT and the future of content, how do you recommend marketers start thinking about and strategizing around creating content that can make an impact and stand out at the end of the day? I agree that it's a fascinating,
0: terrifying, and exciting landscape right now. One thing that I read this morning that made me pause was that Jeffrey Hinton, who is one of the pioneers of AI, he did some amazing research at the University of Toronto. He's been working for Google the last 10 years on AI, and he quit Google because he's so concerned about AI and, and what's going on right now, and he felt that he needed to the ability to speak independently about the future of AI. So that's just setting the stage for what I see as the Wild West right now. To answer your question, I have a lot of concerns about the future of content marketing at a time when content is easily scalable, is that people can use chat, GPT prompts, and I call these people prompt jockeys, to generate content, in minutes, I mean, really good content. And the thing to remember is we're at chat GPT4, which you and I agree is okay, but what happens with five and six and seven when it becomes awesome? So content is going to be easy to create. That's just the way it's going to be. And the content's going to be good. But the biggest question facing not only content marketers, but people who are focused on SEO is how do you break through? with a tsunami of content, how does good content rise above the pack when there's so much competition around keywords? So I I don't know the answer to that right now. And that's the, the biggest thing that I questioned is yes, I can, as a content creator and as a longtime writer, I believe in the power of content. I believe in the power of creativity and content that provides value and insight, but it's the analogy that I wrote on a LinkedIn post recently. So let's say, for example, you have a a restaurant that makes amazing food. Just you're you're you you're so good. People love your food, but suddenly you're surrounded by hundreds of restaurants, like surrounded by hundreds of restaurants, fast food restaurants making cheap and cheerful cheap food. You're gonna lose business because there's just so many options. People may not even may, may may not be able to discover your restaurant, and so I think the biggest issue for for content creators, is not creating content is actually getting people to to discover it, and the and the and the other side of the coin, I think for SEO people is what's the future of SEO if people can just use ChatGPT to find the answers that they want? And if I was Google right now, I'd be terrified.
1: Terrified. Yeah, I've been thinking about this myself, and and for the listener, especially anyone who's listening who's in SEO like myself, perhaps. Maybe the future of SEO is more focused on long form and short form video, where you're over indexing on, sure, creating blog posts and articles in the technical side of things, but then repurposing specifically written content for TikTok, Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts, and then creating long form for YouTube specifically. Maybe that's one avenue to explore, but again, it's it's good to keep one eye on the horizon and the other eye right in front of you. Now. I I do have another question for you where you brought this up earlier. And I think this is a perfect time to talk about it Buyer personas. So I'm in the middle right now of, uh, conceptualizing and defining several buyer personas for, for my team, but my concern, just like with brand guidelines, we create the buyer persona documents. What's next? How often do we revisit them? How often do we update them? How do we create true utility from conceptualizing our buyer personas? What are your thoughts on that, Mark? For a long time,
0: you know, buyer personas in theory have a lot of value because they're fictional representations of our ideal customers as HubSpot likes to tell us. I've always found buyer personas to be in theory useful, but in in practicality, no one ever uses them. And they're, they collect dust somewhere and that's the reality. The problem with buyer personas is that There's just too much fluff and stuff that's not interesting. So, you know, your demographic information, how old you are, what your interests and hobbies are, how many kids you have, all that stuff isn't useful. It doesn't provide any insight into the buying journey or the buyer's process. And I was talking to Jim Krause from the Buyer Persona Institute recently on my podcast and it was almost like an epiphany when he started talking about the five-step process that they used to create buyer personas. It's all about the buyer's journey and buyer insight and understanding what does a buyer want to achieve? What are the triggers that will make them explore a new option? What does success look like? Uh, what are the obstacles that would cause somebody to back off your decision, even your product, even though it might be the best choice? And who's involved in the buyer process, and what are the steps that they take to actually make purchase decisions? What kind of information do they read? You know, what influences them? Um, what excites them about you? And what are the competitive options? So it's not so much focused on the individual and their activities and behavior, but it's more focused on the buying. What does a buyer look like? What motivates a buyer? What what stops a buyer? And that's the way that you should look at buyer personas because when you take that approach, then it salespeople can go, that's what I'm interested in. Product people can know, okay, that's, that these are the things that I need to do to align our product with what buyers are thinking and feeling and doing. And I think that's the better, smarter way to buy our personas. And, and I'm sorry that it took me so long to, to rally around it. But better late than never, I guess, is is the
1: way to go. And you're always learning marketing. So that's just a a key lesson for me. Two more questions for you. What are the benefits that you're seeing from starting your own podcast? That is a question that I get asked all the time. And the short answer, it
0: it has nothing to do with the number of streams or number number of downloads or subscribers. Those, Those are nice metrics to have. And obviously, I want people to listen to my podcast. But I think... The biggest benefits of having a podcast is number one, it gives you access to pretty much anybody you want to talk to. So in the three years that I've run my podcast, 99% of the people that I've reached out to have said, yes, they're happy to be in my podcast. And for me, it's free 30 minute consulting sessions with experts. I get to ask them anything I want about all kinds of different topics. Like Jim Krause, for example, like he gave me 30 minutes of how to write how to create better buyer personas. It's much more powerful than watching YouTube videos or, you know, reading blog posts. So that's number one, is that the access to smart people and and building relationships from scratch with people who could help you and your business move forward. So that's number one. And number two is the idea that you could take a 30-minute podcast and you could create some really powerful, authentic, and prescriptive content, videos, blog posts, infographics, LinkedIn posts, you can squeeze a lot of juice, a lot of marketing juice out of one podcast. And the ability to repurpose and distribute that content in different ways is unbelievable because it's authentic conversations that you're having with people, not things that you're, your idea you had for a marketing idea. So that's the ROI is unbelievable. So you combine those two, and it's the reason that I believe that every B2B company, every B2B SaaS company should have a podcast. It's, it's just a no-brainer. Uh, for those two reasons. And then if you get streams and and downloads, well, that's a, that's a bonus. Yeah,
1: definitely is a bonus with my last question. It's hypothetical because time machines do not exist, but if one did mark and you can go back into the past about 10 years, knowing everything, you know, today, how would you specifically accelerate the speed of your career? That's an interesting question. I think when I look back, I would probably
0: systematize everything that I do right now, all the marketing, content creation, doing a podcast, customer research, everything that I do, I would, I would have, I would develop systems from tip to toe. And so regardless of the job that I was doing or the companies that I worked for, I would come to the table and say, I've got a system and a methodology that I've developed over time. It's proven it works and that this is the operating system that I bring to the table when you hire me as a consultant or an employee. I wish I had done that. It's just a powerful way to have a methodology that that complements the insight and the creativity that that you bring as a person. So, so you can start from scratch and just start, everything you do, start to just just to, what are the steps? Number one, number two, number three, and then continually up that, update those steps. So that becomes your personal marketing Bible. And I wish I had done that from the start because I would have to have just very powerful systems to do
1: marketing efficiently and effectively. Thank you for your time today, Mark. And thank you to you, the listener, for listening to this episode of the podcast. Mark, if anyone wants to find you online, where can they go to discover you? Obviously go to LinkedIn. I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn, probably
0: too much, writing content and commenting and reaching out to people. Just search for Mark Evans fractional CMO. And then you can visit my website, marketingspark.co.
1: And for those who are interested, Mark does have a PDF guide to positioning for B2B companies. It will be in the show notes of this episode. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe and rate us on apple podcast or spotify or wherever you're listening to this on and as always i hope you have a great day bye thanks again for listening to this episode of the podcast on the next episode i will have one of the lead innovators at respona farzad rashidi And we'll be talking about a subtopic within the world of SEO, link building. So if you are trying to get more backlinks, quality backlinks, relevant backlinks that is bringing relevant traffic to your website this year, then you should definitely check out episode 128, which comes out next week with Farzad Rashidi. Don't forget to subscribe, rate this podcast, and share it with a coworker because the best way for all of us to learn is to guide.